0: Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and roles for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply to opt out.
1: Greetings from Cal Korf and Cal's Corner in the beautiful city of Prague in the Czech Republic at www.calkorf.com. You're listening to my good friend, Mr. Rob McConnell, in the Zone, heard around the world exclusively on the Talkstar Radio Network at www.exxonradio.com. Join Rob and I Thursday nights from 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. Pacific Standard Time as the Exxon and Cow's Corner do a simulcast reaching a world where people dare to believe and dare to be heard.
2: Good evening, one and all, and welcome to the x My name is Rob McConnell, and for the next four hours, I'm your host and your guide as together we cross the time-space continuum to this place that I call the x It's a place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. And the x comes to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern right here live and around the world on the Talkstar Star Radio Network. If you'd like to give me a call, my toll-free number is one 877 Now, that's toll-free throughout the U.S., Canada, Alaska, and Hawaii. My email address is exone at talkstarradio.com. On MSN Messenger, talkstarradio at com Or reach our computers here at our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, at our website, com. On tonight's show, we have Keith uh, Chester joining me in a few minutes. We're going to be talking about strange company military encounters with UFOs in World War II. James Gilliland will be talking in the second hour about UFOs. Open mic, third hour, with yours truly, Rob McConnell. And, oh, okay, let's see. There are more paranormal researchers than any other time in history, and yet there is no proof that ghosts are real, alien abductions are real, Bigfoot is real, Nessie is real, and that's just for start. Now, with all the digital cameras that people have access to and all the high-tech satellite surveillance and tracking capabilities, still no concrete proof. Now, I'm going to be asking you for your opinions, your comments, and your observations, and that is in hour number three. Hour number four, my buddy Cal Cor from the Czech Republic joins us for Cal's Corner, and this is tonight, January the 10th in the year 2008. Mankind has reached a threshold in the fourth decade of the 20th century. There were unprecedented scientific and technological achievements, but despite such progress, humanity was entering one of its darkest chapters. World War II would grip the world with six years of terror. During that time, military personnel reported seeing numerous highly unconventional aircraft in all theaters of operation. These objects had extraordinary flight performance capabilities, came in a variety of shapes, Sizes and colors, and were able to travel at extraordinary speeds and avoid radar detection. Strange Company is the first in depth account of unconventional aircraft observed and reported by the military during World War II. It includes the reactions by military commands, their viewpoints, and theories as they struggle to make sense of the observations. Strange Company presents one of the greatest wartime mysteries one that has been shrouded in ignorance for more than 60 years. And it suggests that while an immense 20th century war was raging on Earth, there appeared to be someone or something from somewhere else watching us. When I come back from this two-minute commercial break, my first guest tonight, Keith Chester, he is the author of Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II. That's right here in the X Zone. UFOs. The first two parts of tonight's show, trying to understand why, with so many people now in the field calling themselves researchers, we know less than we did before, statistically speaking, and Cal Corfin, hour number four. My producer tonight, the one and only Superman. Hey, Superman, nice working with you again tonight. And Superman and I will be back on the other side of this two-minute break as the Zone continues. We're right here, live and around the world on the Talkstar Radio Network from the Exxon Studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Music here, so hard, makes me say, oh my lord, thank you for blessing me, what my I Chester is the first guest tonight here on the X-Zone. Keith was born a Sputnik baby. Keith's interest in UFO was sparked by a daytime sighting during the mid-1960s. He's a private researcher, abstract artist, and filmmaker living in Bel Air, Maryland. And Keith, welcome to the X-Zone. How are you tonight?
3: Thanks a lot, Rob. Glad to be on. Uh, Keith, um, uh,
2: how did you first get interest in the topic of UFOs, and can you tell us about the sighting you had?
3: I was uh, nine years old, living in Frederick, Maryland, uh, and it was an evening, daytime sighting. Mm-hmm. The sun had gone down behind me. I lived against the Catoctin Mountains. But it's around 6.30 on a seven, summer evening, and uh, I looked out across the field about 200 yards. There was a, a bright red circular ball structure just hanging in the air above the trees, um, at nine years old, I could put—I had to hold my hand out, and I could hold it in a full palm. So that's about as much as I can tell you about the size, but it just right. hung there, and it scared me. That's all I remember that um, it did scare me. And I was used to seeing helicopters because the Vietnam War had been uh, pretty thick and starting up, and I saw a lot of aircraft, hot air balloons. We used to have uh, an area where biplanes would come out, and and do their stunts mm-hmm. for practice. So I was very aware of what was in the air. So that started my interest, basically.
2: Now, when did you start active research into ufology?
3: That didn't start till around, I guess, eight, 1989. Um, I had a friend who was going to a local high school, and she spoke of a teacher who had worked for the uh, Pentagon in the summer of 1969 under the CETA program, which is a Training agency, And at that time, she worked for Colonel Sullivan for the Office of Civil Defense. And it was just her and Colonel Sullivan, who was an Army officer. At that time, she heard at one point other military officers and he discussed having UFO in U.S. custody. And they were discussing what they should be doing with it in terms of where to keep it and store it. She tried not to listen, but that was her uh, her take on it. And that mm-hmm. was around 1989. Was the time I think Schmidt and Randall came out with the Roswell when that broke. That story broke it was around that time frame. So she was telling her classes in school, high school, and so I interviewed her. And because of that, I decided that I need some uh, guidance, and I contacted uh, Leonard Stringfield, who became my mentor. And uh, so he helped guide me through the case. And that's when I actually started active research with UFOs.
2: Now, what inspired you to write Strange Company?
3: Well, I, uh, it was Mr. Stringfield's sighting. He had uh, a sighting on August 28, 1945, over the Pacific. And that was after the war had ended. And he was heading between Iajima and Iojima uh in a C-46 transport aircraft. Uh, They were going to be the first, he was part of an intelligence capacity for the 5th Air Force, and they were going to be the first intelligence team into the Asugi Airdrome after the bombing of Nagasaki. And uh, he saw during the day three circular aircraft, um, magnesium colored, like burning magnesium, come out of a cloud bank. And it was his impression that they actually caused his aircraft to malfunction, and they were ready to crash land into the ocean so scared the heck out of him and they proceeded to go back into a cloud bank and from that point on he decided to uh, devote his life to UFO research so we all know that story
2: now what transpired over the course of the war uh, were there were there many sightings and uh, were Foo Fighters uh, part of the UFO phenomena during World War II
3: Foo Fighters were a part of the phenomena uh, and the thing that I I Soon discovered after the research was that they weren't what was being seen was called the Foo Fighters, not until January of 1945. Mm-hmm. They had been seen since 1933, and it was a host of names uh, ghost aircraft, mysterious aircraft, phantom flyers, the light, the thing, balls of fire, rockets, jets, uh, whatever the pilots decided to describe them as or the intelligence officers. That would go into the report, and of course, then they would try to backtrack and determine if it was conventional aircraft. So, really, the Foo Fighters was a name given by one night fighter unit, uh, United States night fighter unit, called the 415th Night Fighter Squadron, and they named it after a Smoky Stover cartoon that was popular in the States in the 1940s. Uh, it was named after the fire truck that Smokey drove around with his mad caper <laughs> activities. Mm-hmm. So it stuck because that name hit the press. And uh, it became a generalized term even post-war.
2: Now, what wartime sightings do you feel were the most significant?
3: Well, the most significant would be, I'd say, June twenty fifth, 1942. Um, Captain Ray Sapinski was coming back from bombing uh, the Rohr Valley, Germany's industrial area. He was heading out over Holland, uh, going out over the North Sea, and his crew saw a copper, the size of a moon, object come towards the aircraft. So he immediately alerted the gunners to uh, take defensive position, and uh, it got close. And so they fired upon it. He was in a position where two gunners were able to fire on the object. And what startled them was that the tracer rounds were. Going into the object, but they weren't exiting. So they were sure they were hitting this object, but there were no, nothing that they could see that left behind it. So then they really started to panic. But by then, the object started to maneuver around the aircraft and then shot away and disappeared. Uh, they reported it back at the base. They were ridiculed. They were laughed at. Uh, intelligence officers wanted to know what they were drinking. Mm. But other aircraft coming in behind them had seen the same thing. So, um, but of course, it did not make it into official reports. That the official report can't be found. However, the testimonies are all there.
2: Tell me, Keith. In this case, did the uh, did the UFO take any action or res- respond to the fire that the uh, that uh, the uh, the aircraft was uh, was was giving it?
3: No, to his knowledge, uh, Captain Sapinski's knowledge, it was basically, it maintained a certain distance. Mm -hmm. It just, as if it was monitoring their aircraft. It took no hostile actions. It stayed around. It was under fire. It maneuvered around their aircraft at different positions, and then it just departed. And you'll find many of the sightings were like that throughout the war. Uh, I don't know of any real hostile um, encounters with aircraft they would get close. So, you know, you could take that as a hostile uh, movement. But uh, the the fighter pilots would fire on them. The bomber uh, crews would fire upon them. But basically it was almost as if they were being under surveillance.
2: Now, during this time, uh, during World War II, was there any official investigation launched into the uh, Foo Fighters or the uh, wartime UFOs?
3: Well, the only thing that we we know for sure is uh, in February, January of '43, the British initiated what they called a rocket phenomena investigation. Now, they were calling the odd um, sightings rocket phenomena because they had believed that the Germans were fooling around with rockets. However, the, the performance capabilities of these rockets, turning at 90-degree angles, had intelligence operatives thinking, well, there's no way that could be happening. So we are now dealing with uh Hallucinations, misidentifications, uh, celestial phenomena. So that was the first official uh, investigation. And then, by the time the uh, Foo Fighters came around in uh, the beginning of 1945, General, Eisenhower, uh, G- General Eisenhower's office initiated an investigation specifically into the Foo Fighters. And that was headed by Dr. H.P. Robertson which is famous from the 1953 uh, Robertson Panel Commission held in Washington, to determine if uh, UFOs weren't uh, a threat to the United States' security.
2: And what were the findings of this investigation?
3: Well, they the one significant paper, uh, the one document that has anything to uh, do with a finding, if you could call it that, there was... Um, part in the, the report called On Lack of Danger, and it's, quote, it, if the term flying saucers had been popular in 1943 to 1945, these objects would have been so labeled. However, the team of scientists in Washington, Robertson, Dr. Louis Alvarez, Lloyd Berkner, Dr. Samuel Smith Dr. Thornton Page, determined that it was basically St. Elmo's Fire, or electromagnetic static, uh, it was some type of celestial phenomenon, but Mm -hmm. they still could not determine or have an answer to give the public or the scientific community as to exactly what they were.
2: Now, how many pilots or crew members did you interview for your book, and uh, which was the most compelling stories that you heard?
3: Of course, um, Leonard Stringfield was the most, uh, I guess, compelling in terms of it showed that there was an actual... Uh, physical reaction with his aircraft. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when he did land, he was able to see that the left engine where he saw the objects had leaked oil all the way down his aircraft. And then he had talked later and found out there was some type of uh, magnetic problem with the controls. Uh, The other would be Harold Augsburger, which was the commanding officer of the 415th Knife Fighter Squadron, and they were the unit who named them the Foo Fighters. Most all the men had seen them mm-hmm. uh, over the course of months, and Augsburger himself had, had gone up, and he too witnessed it several times. And the one time he did see it, it was just a ball of light. It appeared out of nowhere. It wasn't on their radar. And after monitoring his flight, the ball shot up into the night sky and just disappeared among the stars, and he estimated it had to be at thousands of miles per hour. No vapor trails, no flames, nothing. That just as if someone took a flashlight beam and shot it up. But he was sure that it was some type of object, because they had come close enough to the aircraft over the, the month to determine it wasn't just. Light. There All
2: right, Keith, light. please stand by. You and I have to take a commercial break with the news at the bottom of the hour. Keith Chester is our special guest. He's the author of Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in WW2. You can uh, find out more about Keith. Order his book at wwwanomalistbookscom forward slash Chester. HTML. My name is Rob McConnell, and this is the own Keith Chester and I will be back on the other side of this news break as we continue live and around the world from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, exclusively right here on Talkstar. Yes, you
1: If you've got kids, chances are sooner or later you're going to need dental help. And when you do, I hope you will remember 1995dental.com. 1995dental.com tells you how to save about 50% on braces for your kids, similar savings on other services. Because this isn't insurance, there is no waiting period, no exclusion, no claim forms to fill out. You get instant savings from tens of thousands of dentists coast to coast. Unlike a lot of insurance policies, This discount program covers cosmetic dentistry, bonding, and cleaning. For the individual, it's $11.95 a month. But for the entire family, everyone who lives under your roof, regardless of age or relationship, it's $19.95 a month. Hence our name, 1995dental.com. Type in the numbers 1995, then the word dental.com. 1995dental.com will save you.
2: Are you questioning your future in the year 2008 and what lies ahead for you in matters of family, love, finance, employment and travel? Do you have questions that have been haunting you and now you're seeking guidance and the answer to these questions from those on the other side? If you have said yes, then you need to call Premier Psychics right now. At Premier Psychics, talented, gifted, professional psychics will help you find the answers to the questions that you seek and help you on life's metaphysical journey. Call Premier Psychics now, toll free at 1-866-803-6593 or visit Premier Psychics online at www.premierpsychics.com. Know today what the future holds for you. Once again, call Premier Psychics toll-free at 1-866-803-6593 or visit Premier Psychics online at www.premierpsychics.com where the extra E in Premier stands for excellence. To the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Everybody
0: talks about it.
2: Chester is my special guest. He is the author of uh, Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in WW2. Keith's website is www.anomalistbooks.com forward slash chester.html. And Keith, uh, thanks for joining us tonight and uh, for enlightening us on the UFO phenomenon during WW2. Um, there There was a lot of speculation, Keith, about the advancements that the Germans had made, in, as you and I were talking about earlier, uh, in rocket propulsion, and also that the Germans had been working on an anti-gravity flying uh, machine. Is there any connection between this and any of the UFO sightings that you're aware of?
3: Uh, No, but however, I can see how the correlation is there. When the air intelligence uh, officers moved in to exploit Germany uh, right at Germany surrendered, uh, they were uncovering vast amounts of documentation, blueprints, uh, material, and, of course, they were encountering the facilities, scientists, technicians. And it, uh, they quickly realized that Germany, aeronautically, were 20 years ahead of the United States. So there was great uh, a great deal of information that, of course, would be phenomenal to us. Regarding UFOs and and during the war, there's no evidence to suggest that the great sightings that we have were German-related. However, it wouldn't surprise me, and of course other researchers have shown, that there were UFO-type aircraft on the drawing boards. That controversy rages now. But the actual UFOs that I consider phenomenal during during the wartime, I do not see any indication that Germany had such ability.
2: During your research, Keith, um, did you also investigate radar radar uh, reports and ra- radar targeting of these UFOs? And is there any correlation between the, uh, the UFO radar tracks that were reported in World War II to the present-day UFO tracking reports?
3: Well, of course, radar was new during World War II, and there were aspects of radar what they call them the ghost of Nancy, or or pips or blips or phantoms that um you know birds could actually come up on the screen but there were aspects where radar operators could not see the aircraft on their screens even though they knew they were only about 50 feet from the aircraft that's what some of the amazing things are as far as The technology today in radar detection, I'm sure, is far more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. But at that time, and given how new radar was, um, there was enough to cause real concern in American intelligence.
2: During the the war, did the UFOs seem to pick sides, and uh, did they ever interfere with any of the uh, air battles?
3: There's no indication that I have that that happened. However, there is indication, uh, there are indications that the Axis pilots were seeing them also. The most unfortunate thing about my research was I wasn't able to go, go to Germany or Austria or, or Russia and check the archives there. Right. Uh, but there are researchers in Italy, there are researchers in the Soviet Union, I mean Russia, excuse me, that have... Uh, dug into the archives, and from what I gather, there have been just as many sightings um, of some type of phenomenon. And uh, I do know from interviewing some of the pilots that a couple had told me that they were told by intelligence officers that, yes, indeed, uh, when we were capturing the German pilots, that they, too, had talked about observing something that they thought were ours. Yet there's no official documentation that I've come across that shows that. I still believe that's classified for whatever reason.
2: To your knowledge, Keith, is there any operation, uh, theater of operation, that did not encounter uh, wartime UFOs?
3: Uh, the primary theater of operations were the Italian theater of operation, the Mediterranean, European, and of course the Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm China and Burma Theater, I believe, had a few. Uh, but, again, I only really touched the tip of the iceberg regarding documentation and was only able to see a very small fraction of, of air intelligence reports that came in. So there was probably a great deal more. However, the European Theater and the Pacific Theater had the most information that made it to the widespread press. And that's why we know so much now, because the press got a hold of the story, for one. Mm -hmm. And, of course, now you can find documentation in the archives that talk about the phenomenon. They use these actual words.
2: Now, during World War II, uh, the Japanese were involved with the development and launching of fugos from the shores of japan and these balloons would rise and use the jet streams to to um to try and attack the u.s Uh, some of the some of the uh, fugos carried intelligence uh, equipment others carried personnel and others carried bombs is it possible that some of the ufos reported in the pacific campaign or the pacific theater were actually fugos
3: oh absolutely uh There were probably a lot of misidentified uh, objects. You know, Uh high altitude weather balloons. Weather balloons. Uh, They had, of course, the Fugos. They know they were coming over, but there was a blank, a blank out of the, uh, of the information to the American public. They had no clue because they didn't want to start a panic.
2: That's the last thing they wanted to do. No,
3: and I think there was actually uh, some death caused. I think a a boy scout master and a few of of Mm -hmm. the troops walked upon one, hanging in a tree, and were killed. Um, But yes, the pilots were seeing all kinds of things that were definitely all lumped together. And we have to remember the terminology of World War II is what gets us in trouble. Some of the, the strange sightings were called jets, yet they weren't jets, but they were using terms. So when the reports read balloon, you had to think, well, there's a real possibility that was a balloon. However, we also know from other reports, balloon was just a catch-all term. As where rockets, flares, you name it. So absolutely, there were a lot of things that were being seen that can be explained. However, at a distance, war nerves, under fire, in combat situations, it's very understandable how you could not get all the details.
2: Keith prior to and after the uh, the nuclear explosions at Hiroshima and Nagasaki did UFO activity increase or decrease
3: Well if when I sp- first started my investigation with Mr. Stringfield he felt at the time that the UFO activity increased with the atomic bomb testing but that I don't Quite agree with. I believe that the activity, the flurry of activity, was just as great at that point ten years prior. Uh, the Scandinavian sightings of 1933 were in the hundreds. Finland, Norway, Sweden were all conducting investigations. I, uh, John Kill uh, did a, a lot of investigation on that, and I based my book on his investigation. But they were uh, seeing things that mimic today's sightings. Uh, objects in the the sky that beams would come down on the ground. And there were hundreds of these uh, beams seen all around the world. So I was shocked to see when I started to pull all this together into one form that, no, there were plenty of sightings. But by the time the war started, that had to, of course, take the most important aspect in the press. So a lot of it was suppressed. And, of course, it was intermingled with enemy activity so uh, i don't agree with that at all i think that the activity was just as strong as ever prior to the bombing
2: now is there any any uh, based on your research now is there has there been a hypothesis brought forward to that would indicate where these craft originated from and what their purpose was
3: the hypothesis are are in the hundreds, probably. I mean, I'm sure you have in your show have come across quite a few. Mm-hmm. Um, to this day, I see no nothing that can identify the, the phenomenon that was being seen during the war. If I put blinders on and look at the phenomenon during the war, I can say, okay, there's a good chance we were dealing with enemy technology. However, when you read the intelligence reports, it dictates otherwise. And then after the war, we have one document, one major document out of the CIA that talks about this phenomenon, and there was no explanation. So it's, I, don't, I don't understand it either. I think in your third hour you're going to discuss that topic, correct? Yes. And uh, it, it amazes me. It, you know. It, I think Jerome Clark has said it uh, best. He said that we're not dealing with a phenomenon, we're dealing with phenomena. And it's just, at this point, still eluding us. I don't understand why. But during the war, it was truly startling a lot of people, including these you know hardened veterans who were in combat for months, years. And when they would encounter these things, it was so different. It was beyond what they considered. They were calling it Buck Rogers. They were calling it Flash Gordon-related. They were laughing about it at the same time. But they realized... What are we seeing? So I hope that answered your question. I jumped around a lot, but
2: you know, it's it's all right. Uh, you know, as as I said, you know, it was based on your your, your research and uh, what, what your hypothesis was, and uh, you know, I, I understand that the field is very vague. Um, were there a lot of were there a lot of photos taken of these UFOs during World War II? Uh, because you know, there were a lot of newsreel cameramen all over the place.
3: Absolutely. If you watch a World War II documentary of the the air war, mm-hmm. they had cameramen who handheld cameras. They had eight millimeters, six millimeters. They had nose cameras. They had uh, cameras in aircraft, and that's all they did for uh, meteorological reasons or air reconnaissance. So there were tons in the air. And from what I understand, there were objects captured. However, what's interesting is There is no known official photograph that can be verified of a Foo Fighter or a UFO during the war. There's about two or three that have been circulated for the last several decades as being authentic. However, I don't believe that those sources are known in in terms of where they came from. But when you talk to people... Mm -hmm veterans, you find out, yes, the gun camera footage existed. It was whisked away the to Washingtons, to the Pentagon, whatever. Again, the same old story, secrecy. And uh, I, that's all I can say. I, that was one of the things I'm still looking for with my research are, are more of the photographs, what happened to the gun camera footage, any kind of report that was generated from that
2: you know, Keith. Um, after having done the research that you that you did in in working on your book, uh, "Strange um, Strange Company," when speaking to the veterans, uh, what 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 did they say? How did they express their feelings when it came to these unidentified flying objects?
3: Two of the uh, veterans that I have I are in my book: Harold Augsburger and, of course, Leonard Stringfield both to this day well Leonard passed away in 94 but Harold Augsburg is still alive living in Ohio and they believe that they had been dealing with something of extraterrestrial nature that was that's what, exactly what they said to me and they stand behind that uh, others thought it was a good possibility some couldn't believe that's what it was and thought for sure they were dealing with german technology however they weren't sure but they weren't willing to say, oh, it was from outer space or Buck Rogers. Mm-hmm. But generally, the veterans were kind of laughed about it. They kind of were taken back. They were surprised. They they didn't understand, you know, many of them had encountered the ME-262 jet, which was the first. Could you imagine being 19, 20 years old and encountering the first jet in combat? That was something very extraordinary to see, I'm sure.
2: It sure was, yeah. And,
3: and then... Some of them had seen the V-2s in flight, the V-1s in flight, so they had a good understanding of what flight capabilities were, and the the UFOs that they were seeing really stuck out in their mind as being something very unusual, but I'd say the majority of the pilots I spoke with thought it was German technology.
2: Keith, happen. stand by, young man. You and I have to take a commercial break. Keith Chester is our special guest. Great book, Exo Nation: Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in WW2. To uh, find out more about Keith, to find out more about Strange Company, visit www.anomalistbooks.com forward slash chester.html. Keith and I will be back on the other side of this uh, break as the Exxon continues live and around the world from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Heard around the world exclusively right here on Talkstar. Don't go away.
0: This is Dan Hall from No More Waiting. The folks that get structured settlement holders, their money now. So right now, call us at 800-769-3498. Got an insurance settlement that's taking years to pay out, but you want your money now? No more waiting is for you. You're in the third year of a 20-year settlement, but you want a new car or a new home now? No more waiting is for you. Need to catch up on bills now? No more waiting is for you. Call 800-769-3498. Want answers about your Your settlement payments now. No More Waiting is for you. In fact, No More Waiting has prepared a DVD chock full of information to help you get the most money for your settlement payments. Call today. It's free and there's no obligation. Call 800-769-3498. That's right, for your free DVD. Just call 800-769-3498. For your free quote, your free DVD, and your path to financial freedom, call No More Waiting at 800-769-3498 now.
2: San Francisco For the Labor Day Weekend show I got my Hush puppies on I guess I never was meant For glitter rock and roll
0: And honey I didn't know That I'd be Missing you so Come Monday It'll be alright Come Monday
2: Keith Chester is our special guest. He's the author of Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in WW2. The website is www.anomalistbooks.com forward slash chester.html. First of all, Keith, thanks very much for joining us tonight. It's been great talking to you over this past hour. And I was wondering, Keith, uh, to your knowledge, were there sightings of UFOs during the Korean conflict, during the uh, the Vietnam War and uh, in the uh, present uh, Gulf situations?
3: I know for a fact that, uh, yes, the Korean War and Vietnam War uh, both had sightings, and for what I understand, there have been sightings in the Gulf War. And unfortunately, I'm not knowledgeable enough to really discuss those with you, but I have come across uh, the articles and books and magazines, too.
2: Uh, Keith, uh, do you have any other books coming out soon?
3: Well, I'm still working on I'm going to probably work up on a follow-up for this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I researched it, more and more questions. Uh, I'm very intrigued by the investigations, the air technical intelligence teams. I'm interested in the uh, the fact that we were exploiting Germany. And, of course, we had to be looking for that technology, assuming it was theirs. If we looked at it through the eyes of an intelligence officer in 1945, mm-hmm. I doubt seriously they were thinking, except for in certain realms, that there was something extraterrestrial taking place. So they were probably wanting to know what did the Nazis have that can account for some of these sightings, and that fascinates me. Uh, So I'm going to keep researching the National Archives and hopefully put together another book.
2: After writing this book... Keith, and uh, talking to the people that you did, the men and women on both, si- both sides of the campaign. What is the most intriguing question that that, that came to light?
3: Regarding the veterans or, or my research? Both. I guess the most intriguing was, for years, uh, it was uh, printed in the... Uh, magazines and books, that there were no official investigations. Mm -hmm. The war was a top priority. Uh, Churchill, Eisenhower, Truman, Roosevelt, they had more to worry about than chasing down UFO sightings. But come to find out, when I went to the archives, I uncovered documentation right out of General Eisenhower's office talking about night phenomenon. And, of course, that was what the Foo Fighters were in the press. However, the British were calling them balls of fire. So it tells me that there were investigations going on behind the scenes. And that tells me there's documentation, and especially when it was at that high level of the military. Keith,
2: I I hate to do this, but we've run out of time for tonight. Love to have you back on in the future. And congratulations on a great book and uh, continued success.
3: Thank you very much Ron. I appreciate it.
2: It's really nice talking to you Keith. Take care of yourself. Have
3: a great Keith night.
2: Uh, Chester has been our guest this hour X O Nation the name of his book is Strange Company Military Encounters with UFOs in WW2. His website www.anomalistbooks.com/chester.html. If you're here, if you're into UFOs don't go away when we come back from the news at the top of the hour. My guest is going to be James Gilliland. We're going to be talking about contact. We're also going to be talking about UFOs, the International UFO Congress, and much more. I'll be back with UFOs right here on top. Talk-